0: following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Hello. Um, that clipboard that's going around with the Teen Challenge stuff on it. There's a, there's a note written on the, the notepad there that was supposed to be here. Yeah, so on June, Nisa, you have it, so you can correct me if I get this wrong. On June the 3rd, we're going to do a little outdoor cleanup here at the building and some gardening and weeding. Uh, So if anybody is interested in in helping out with uh, sprucing up the outside here of the building, that will be on June the 3rd, and if you have any questions or thoughts about that, you can talk to Kay, since she's not here today. All right, well, that's why I write things down. It's the only way they're going to stick. I didn't write the other thing down that I was going to share, and so that's gone. Um, I'm glad you all came back this week. Um, After last week's sermon, I kind of had my doubts uh, that anybody would show up. I kind of didn't want to. Um, But if you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, Um, verses 28 through 36, and that's page 876 in the Pew Bibles, Luke 9, 28. So this morning we're going to look at uh, what? Oh, that's – I didn't write it down. I told you. Okay. So while you're turning to Luke 9, we're going to work on our catechism questions um, on the screen. The kids, I'm telling you. Yeah. Oh. Uh, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I got you. all right, well, we'll just, we started on, I got it, I got it, we got the thing here. All right, question 11. Uh, we're going to stick with the, no, okay, we'll just go back and forth. Question 11. What does God require in the 6th, 7th, and 8th commandments? Kids. 6th, that we do not hurt or hate our neighbors. 7th, that we live purely and faithfully. 8th, that we do not take without permission that which belongs to everyone else. Excellent. So now it's not on the screen, adults. (laughs) we're gonna stick with the kids (laughs) all right we're gonna stick with the kids except for now it's working (laughs) so funny story andrew and i and uh, andrew daniel and i were trying to change the tire on my truck i lost a tire uh, blew a tire this week and they're trying to get a spare tire down off the back of the truck which hasn't moved in 20 years so it didn't really want to go anywhere and it's the only part of the truck that never gets sprayed with the undercoating stuff, so, um, and we're fighting, and we're, and nothing is working the way that it's supposed to, and we're shaking and shaking and shaking and laying on the ground in the dirt like on the side of the road, and we finally just let go of the tire, and I'm like, what do we do now, Lord? Dunk, and it, <laughs> so, what's the, what's the rule around here? Get out of the way and let the Lord work. All right. Okay, so we did question 11 for the kids. So adults, question 11. Six, that we do not hurt or hate or be hostile to our neighbor, but be patient and peaceful, pursuing even our enemies with love. Seventh, that we abstain from sexual immorality and live purely and faithfully, whether in marriage or in single life, avoiding all impure actions, looks, words, thoughts or desires and whatever might lead to them. Eight, that we do not take without permission that which belongs to someone else nor withhold any good from someone we might benefit. Question 12, what does God require in the ninth and tenth commandment kids? And adults, what does God require in the ninth and tenth commandments? Ninth, that we do not lie or deceive, but speak the truth in love. Tenth, that we are content, not envying or resenting what God has given them or us. Question 13, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly, kids? Since football, no human has been able to keep law of God perfectly. And Adults? Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. Question 14 Did God create us unable to keep His law, kids? No, but because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, we're all born in sin and death. To keep God's law. And adults? No. no. But because of the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, all of creation is fallen. We are born in sin and guilt, corrupt in our nature, and unable to keep God's law. Question 15 Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? And adults, that we may know the holy nature and will of God, and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts, and thus our need of a Savior. The law also teaches and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our Savior. And question 16, the last one What is sin, kids? Right, and adults, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world He created, rebelling against Him by living without reference to Him, not being or doing what He requires in His law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. Amen. Okay, you happy now? Okay, Luke chapter nine, uh, starting at verse 28. This morning we're going to look at one of the most fantastic events in the Gospels. It is an event of great importance in the history of redemption, perhaps only outshined by the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that's the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. And we have a lot to work to do, a lot of work to do today, um, but it's not my goal to be exhaustive in this study in dealing with this text and its theological implications, but perhaps uh, help us all to gain a little bit of understanding of this event and its purpose and meaning. So let's look at our text and then dive in. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake and saw his glory and the two men who stood with him, and as the men were, de- were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful to be gathered together in this place this morning that we can freely gather to worship you, uh, to pray, to read your word, and to talk about its meaning and implication for our lives. Lord, we thank you for um, this word. These are your words, inspired by God and penned by the hand of men. We are so grateful that you have preserved it for us to read this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak and that we would be different as a result of our time in your word today. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's been uh, considerable debate about this, um, this event. Um, I think that uh, theologians like to argue, uh, and so they find things like, what mountain is this? What's the name of the mountain um, that uh, Jesus led Peter and James and John up to pray? Some say Mount Hermon. Some say Mount Tabor. I say Mount Irrelevant because it doesn't matter. The name of this mountain and its exact location are completely irrelevant to the purpose and meaning of this event. And you know how I know that for certain? Because it doesn't say. It doesn't matter. Um, The purpose and meaning of this event are extremely relevant to our understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. What the name of the mountain was doesn't matter at all. What we do know is that Jesus led Peter, James, and John to go up a mountain to pray, and something fantastic happened there. And there's there's been a lot of preachers and teachers that have endeavored to make much about the glory of jesus and moses and elijah here and try to stretch that over what believers might experience when they die you know who we're going to see and and the idea that we'll just know who everybody is like the disciples just knew it was moses and elijah well, does it doesn't it doesn't say that but you know they just knew because that's what heaven is going to be like which again is a is a Theological misunderstanding. There's just all kinds of efforts to to do things like that and all sorts of weird ideas like that. But that's not the purpose and meaning of this event at all. It's not even close. Some preachers purport that this passage emphasizes the importance of prayer in the life of the believer. That will not be transformed in our Christian life unless we are much in prayer. Uh, um, maybe, um, but that's a stretch for this text. That's that's not what this is about, really. Some say that Peter's desire to build three tents is representative of the threefold ministry of the church. Well, I don't even know. I don't have a clue what that even means. <laughs> or that this text clearly states the whole tent idea was dumb. I just like picking on people. They're not here to defend themselves. right? I read a bunch of weird stuff, and you guys just get to laugh along with me. Quite frankly, I think the purpose and meaning of the transfiguration of Jesus lies right on the surface. I prefer to take an idiot's eye view of the text because that's where I live, right? That's, that's who I am. And though the disciples didn't understand it at the time, once they were filled with the Holy Spirit after Jesus' ascension, after the day of Pentecost, This is made clear to them. Peter would even write about this uh, in one of his letters in 2 Peter. You can read about that in chapter 1. So I want to break this down into little bites and see what a wonderful and powerful event this really was and where that meaning lies right on the surface. So let's start with verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. So both Matthew 17 and Mark 9 describe this same scene. And they use the word transfigured, that Jesus was transfigured before the disciples, which is where we get our English word metamorphosis. Uh, that's the Greek word metamorpho that, uh, that they used. This is the change from the inside out, right? Where Luke simply says that the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. They're describing the same thing. But the truth remains, regardless of what words you use, that Jesus' appearance was changed before their eyes, and his clothed, clothing gleamed like lightning, whiter than any bleach could ever make it. And I think our imaginations and our ability, our ability to picture this, uh, to picture Jesus' appearance, just falls desperately short. Um, just as the disciples' ability to comprehend his glory fell desperately short. Uh, now, there are some who want to say that this was an ap- uh, a sudden appearance of a sunbeam through the clouds that shone on Jesus and it made it appear like he was glowing, All right? Uh, sh- the sun shining off the snow. That's why it's important it's on Mount Hermon because there's snow on Mount Tabor, but it does on, on Mount Hermon. And so the sun shined on the snow and they were snowblind. Like, <laughs> uh, this is Israel, not New Hampshire, no. <laughs> This was, the taste, was, was a taste of the radiance of Jesus' glory, the glory of the one and only Son of God. This was not a natural event. This was a supernatural thing. And he was transfigured before them. And then two other men also appeared with him, Moses and Elijah, in verse 30. Behold, two men were, were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. One of my favorite preachers, um, who I'm not going to name because you won't listen to his next quote, um, he spoke of how the disciples just knew who these two men were like just innately knew. this Moses and Elijah. Just like we're supposed to just know who everybody else will be in God's eternal kingdom. Uh, uh, that's baloney. Maybe they were wearing name, wearing name tags. Um, I don't. I don't think so. I think they knew who they were because they appeared and were talking with Jesus about his departure, right? Um, and the disciples could hear them talking. Jesus could have said, "You're right, Moses. Ah, da 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 da. Elijah, I like the way you da 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 da. I, I don't know." Not to take anything away from the amazing nature of this event, but the disciples did hear the conversation they were having about Jesus' departure. The Greek word is exodus. Perhaps you've heard of that before. He was about to accomplish his exodus at Jerusalem, right? He was just passing through this land that we live in and was on his way to a better one. But regardless of how they knew who these other two men were, again, it doesn't really matter, why did those two guys appear? Why those two specific guys? Why not Amos and Obadiah? That, that was rhetorical? the it is rhetorical. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't write it down, so I don't have the right answer to that. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses and Elijah are the two greatest mesh- messengers of the Old Covenant. Of the Old Testament, right? Moses was the prophet who delivered God's law to the people of Israel. He's the one that went up on Mount Sinai, and God's finger wrote the Ten Commandments in tablets of stone, and he brought them down to the people. Moses is referenced all through the New Testament uh, because of the law, right? We talked about the law in our catechism questions. That's the Ten Commandments. That's the law. And Moses was the law bringer. Moses himself said in Deuteronomy 18:15 to the people, The Lord, Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Who do you think he's talking about? Jesus, right? That's in Deuteronomy 18. That's pretty close to the front of the book, in case you don't know. The father also said to Moses in verse 18 and 19 of that same chapter, he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. God's talking about Jesus. So Elijah Uh, If Moses was the one who brought the law, uh, brought God's law, Elijah was the prophet who delivered God's people from worshiping false gods. And although we don't have anything that he wrote, you can't find any uh, writings from Elijah in the Old Testament, uh, he is considered to be the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He is the prophet that didn't die. Remember, he's the one where we get the whole chariots of fire thing. That wasn't just about a marathon runner. Right? Chariots of, the chariot of fire carried Elijah up to heaven. Um, so these two representatives of the old covenant appear in order to consecrate Jesus, the Messiah, for death, in order to fulfill the law and the prophets. That's what Jesus' purpose was. That's why he didn't just come, appear one day, and then die on the cross and three days later be raised and then go back to God. He spent those thirty three years fulfilling the law and the prophets, living a perfect life, following the Ten Commandments in a way that we never could. For us. Jesus said in Matthew five, seventeen, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that's exactly what he did in his perfect life and his death and his resurrection. So our favorite theologian, J.J. Van Oosterzee, he wrote, The Christological importance of this whole event for all following centuries is self-evident. A new light from heaven rises upon Jesus' person. On the one hand, it rises upon his true humanity, which needed the communication and strength from above. On the other hand, his divine dignity as well in relation to the Father as also in comparison with the prophets, is here made known to heaven and earth. Considered from a typical symbolic point of view, it is significant that the appearance of the prophets is represented as a vanishing one. Jesus, on the other hand, as alone remaining with his disciples, their light goes down, his sign, his sun shines continuously. Moses and Elijah left. And their ministry was completed. But Jesus remained, and his ministry remains as well. Not less light here falls upon the work of the Savior. The inner unity of the Old and New Covenant becomes by this manifestation evident and is shown that in Christ the highest expectations of the law and the prophets are fulfilled. His death, far from being accidental or insignificant, appears here as carrying out the eternal counsel of God. And is of so high importance that messengers of heaven come to speak concerning it on earth. The severity of the sacrifice to be brought by him is manifest from the very fact that he is an altogether extraordinary manner equipped for this conflict. And the great purpose of his suffering union of heaven and earth, how vividly it is here presented before our souls. When we on the mountain, although only for a few moments, see heaven descending upon earth and dwellers of the dust taken up into communion of the heavenly ones. This is a fantastic scene. And it it's clear that the disciples were taken with this whole scene, even though they, it's clear they did not understand what was going on. Verse 32 says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. I I mean, I love camping as much as the next person. What is Peter trying to do, right? Is he trying to to keep Moses and Elijah there, right? Because don't forget, Peter's Jewish, right? He grew up with Moses and Elijah being uh, the, the people that they, they were counting on, right? Why wouldn't he want them to stay? It's because he didn't understand Jesus' purpose. He didn't understand that the law and the prophets were being fulfilled and they were they they filled a different function now. I don't believe that there's any great significance to the tents that Peter wanted to set up, no deep mysterious symbols for us to discern threefold ministry of the church whatever that is. I could probably think of three things, but fellowship dinner and <laughs> Luke even goes so far as to say that Peter didn't know what he was saying. I like that. Mark, in his account, which we've discussed previously, was Peter's own telling of these events, uh, said that Peter offered this uh, suggestion because he didn't know what else to say. So he just fired off something uh, because that's just who Peter was. Um, he didn't know what else to say because he was terrified. Now Maybe maybe Peter was hoping that this was the beginning of God's kingdom on earth, Um But he would have to ignore Jesus' own words, saying that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and on the third day rise again. He had just said that, eight days previous to this. Peter's suggestion of building the tents points to his ignorance of God's purpose and his desire to cling to the old covenant. I take great comfort in that because uh, here's Peter walking with Jesus all this time and listening to his words and still doesn't get it. And so when I'd miss it, like, well, I mean, there's hope for Peter. I oh, should be okay. The Lord's still working, right? There's another special guest at this amazing event, not just Moses and Elijah, but Father God himself. Verse 34 says, "As he was saying these things about the tent, as Peter was saying these things about tents. A cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. The voice of the Father, which they had heard at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, once again affirms Jesus' sinlessness his his being well-pleasing to God the Father, and his elevation above the voices of the old covenant prophets, the Father's approval of the plan that would lead to Jesus dying on the cross. I think what's missing in our English language is emphasis. We can simply read this, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Like, yeah, I mean, we have that. No, no, no. Moses and Elijah were just here. This is my son. This is my chosen one. This is Messiah. Listen to him. As opposed to them. Right? That's the emphasis that we miss. Listen to him. John Calvin wrote, I willingly concur with those who think that there is an implied contrast of Moses and Elijah with Christ. And that the the disciples of God's own son are here charged to seek no other teacher. The word son is emphatic and raises him above servants. There are two titles here bestowed upon Christ, which are not more fitted to do honor to him than to aid our faith, a beloved son and a master. The father calls him my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and thus declares him to be the mediator by whom he reconciles the world to himself. When he enjoins us to hear him, he appoints him to be the supreme and only teacher of his church. It was his design to distinguish Christ from all the rest, as we truly and strictly infer from these words, that by nature he was God's only son. In like manner, we learn that he alone is beloved by the Father and that he alone is appointed to be our teacher that in him all authority may dwell. When it is said that in the end they saw Christ alone, this means that the law and the prophets had a temporary glory, that Christ alone may remain fully in view. If we would properly avail ourselves of the aid of Moses, we must not stop with him, but must endeavor to be conducted by his hand to Christ, of whom both he and all the rest are ministers. The whole purpose of the Old Testament is to point to the person and work of Jesus. The whole point of the Old Testament is to show us the glory of God and the holiness of his character and our need for a savior. When we read the Old Testament, we have to keep that in mind or it doesn't make any sense. When we hold up the book and say, read this and do it, and then you go to Leviticus... And now we've got to find some goats and stuff. It's not the purpose of Leviticus any longer. It's to show us the holiness of God in his character and our sinfulness and our need for someone to intervene, to stand in our place and take our sin upon himself. That's Jesus. That's the point. having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So have confidence that this has been the plan from the beginning, that the whole Old Testament points to the person and work of Jesus and that he is the fulfillment of it, of the law and the prophets, that Jesus is God's one and only son, the Christ the chosen one of God, and that we should listen to him above all other voices that clamor for our attention, even our own voices. We must listen to him above all. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have shown us In your word, the meaning of Christ's coming. We're thankful that you have revealed the plan. That from the beginning, you knew you'd have to intervene. That something had to be done about our sin that we are unable to do ourselves. And this displays your great grace and love for your creation. And we're so thankful. Lord, we are thankful for Jesus who fulfilled the law and the prophets and took our place on the cross. He died the death that we deserve. <coughs> willingly, he willingly gave his life in our place. And if there's anyone, Lord, within the sound of my voice that has not put their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, their direction for their lives and for a place in your eternal kingdom. I pray that they would call out to you in faith even now, asking you for forgiveness and accepting Jesus as their Savior. Lord God, we are grateful for this word. We're grateful for your plan. We're grateful for your son. It's in his name we pray, amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, Checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipede, New Hampshire, 03890.